Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. What passing bells for those who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. The opening of Anthem for Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen, famous war poet who died in action on the 4th of November, one week before the armistice brought peace at last to the Western Front. And it's kind of indicative, really, of the way that people in Britain have come to see um, the Western Front from Wilfred Owen. It's, it can trace a line to the concept of lions led by donkeys, um, the uh, joke in Blackadder of Haig making yet another gargantuan effort to move his drinks cabinet six inches closer to Berlin. And Dominic Sambrook, um, you, you've actually written a book on the First World War. Is that right? On for, uh, for children, children's book. For children's, children's book. book, yeah. Yeah, but that's right. fine. You know, I mean, so you're kind of immersed in all this. I have been. This hasn't been published yet. It's been published just before Christmas. Um, well, so I have... It's such a fascinating subject, Tom. And as you say, that it's funny because I was thinking when you were doing that, when you were reading that poem, that we did that. Did you like my somber voice? I thought it was beautiful. I think, I think, I think if the history doesn't work out, and and who knows if it will, um, then a career as a reader of reader of poetry, audiobooks, war poetry. Yeah, war poetry. I think you'd be great at that, Tom. Thanks, Dorian. Appreciate that. But anyway, I was about to say, Wilfred Owen, I did that at GCSE, and pretty much exactly that moment blackadder goes forth was going out on whatever it was bbc one so i was as a teenager completely steeped in that idea of the the western front as this a senseless waste i mean that's the the classic those the classic things that people say about it war what is it good for yeah precisely and actually it was quite invigorating later on to start reading these these books that said actually no no it was not a senseless waste a lot of people on the Western Front actually enjoyed it. Um, you know, the, the the generals were much more canny than posterity kind of allows. And as it happens, we've got one of the the, the absolute kind of <laughs> key have. figures in, in that argument, um, <coughs> Professor Gary Sheffield. Anyway, Tom, you've probably got a better introduction for him than I do. Well, no, I, I, absolutely. I mean, Gary Sheffield is, you know, I mean, he's completely transformed the the understanding of the First World War. So really, there's no one better to have on the show to to look at the history of the Western Front, but also the various ways in which it's been understood. Um, and I, I guess, Gary, the book you asked me to mention before we started this podcast was Forgotten Victory, the First World War Myths and Realities. So um, I guess we're going to be talking quite a lot about myths and realities in this in this show. I think the title gives a little clue to my views, yes. Okay. Well, before we get on to um, the myths and realities, could you just give us a sense of of why the Western Front comes into existence? I mean, basically, it's because the war breaks out in uh, in, in the summer of 1914. And to begin with, it's very mobile, isn't it? That's that's right. Uh, Essentially, the Western Front comes into being because the German attempt to win the war very quickly in the West fails. That the Germans, well, historians debate how close they came to defeating the Allied armies, 
primarily the French, because, of course, the British army at this stage is is very small. And so, Gary, the measure of success for the Germans would have been to capture Paris. Is that basically...? that's what they were aiming to do. Whether that actually would have knocked France out of the war is, is, is another matter. But they, they, they don't succeed in capturing Paris. And perhaps even more importantly, they don't succeed in inflicting a, a crippling blow on, on the French army. Basically, what the Germans are hoping to do in 1914 is to repeat 1870, when the, 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 the German field armies defeated the French field armies in a, in a matter of months. And that's for a whole range of reasons that does not happen in 1914. Instead, what happens is that both sides stumble upon something they've really known about already. That is that if you are about to be outflanked or defeated, you get your soldiers to to dig holes in the ground, long, long, thin holes. You put your soldiers in them, in these trenches, and suddenly it becomes much more difficult to kill these soldiers for the simple reason that if you put a man in a hole, give him a bit of head cover, put a bit of barbed wire out in front, he's actually quite a difficult target to hit. But the poor so-and-sos who have to advance across the open towards the trenches are, of course, much more vulnerable. And add to the fact that by 1914, weapons are extremely powerful. I mean, there's, there's been a revolution in firepower over the last hundred years. Because don't forget, 99 years before the First World War breaks out is the Battle of Waterloo, in which you have armies basically standing up, you know, a few yards from each other, blazing away. By 1914, that is no longer possible because of the power of the weapons, the sheer size of the armies, which, you know, are, are go from being perhaps 100,000 strong, oops, thereabouts at Waterloo, to, to millions strong. And all, of course, these are major industrial powers backed by vast economies, which become even more powerful as they are developed to support the war effort. Cut a long story short, all this means is that the armies are unable to break the deadlock, uh, which comes into being by the middle of November 1914. Uh, and it's in place largely, although not entirely, until the spring of 1918. And in, in big handfuls, it's easy, easy to, to explain in... in, in um, it's, it's fairly easy to, to, to explain it in, in, in technical terms why. Uh, it's that the defender, having these mans in, in, in a hole already mentioned, can bring a vast amount of firepower to bear. And also that when an attacker uh, breaks into an enemy position, it, normally they are so weakened by the effort that they, they simply don't have enough men to throw through to exploit the gap that's made. And, and, and also because they lack... Uh, communications in the way that they would have in the Second World War by radio, or they lack the ability to pass messages uh, by by courier or or rider or something, as had been the case perhaps even 50 or 60 years before, because armies are so big and so dispersed uh, that they simply can't summon up reserves at the right place at the right time. Of course, the defender, who is dug in, has telephone wires buried deep beneath the ground, and he could actually get a message back and rush people up to the right place at the right time. And what happens is over the next four years that uh, the armies on the Western Front, the the French, the Germans, the British, struggle with coming up with technological ways of breaking this deadlock. In the end, they do, but it's enormously bloody. And in a sense, the answer to the reason to, to the question why are the casualties so heavy is that if you fight that sort of war, 
that are the sorts of casualties we're going to end up with. And really, the failure to come up with some sort of compromise peace, which is a political, not a military decision, condemns the armies to fight those sorts of battles. Now, you can argue about the competence of generals and competence of individual armies, but they're the fundamental reasons why the, the, the Western Front turns out to be as stalemated and as bloody as it is. So if we go back to um, the autumn of 1914, so the Germans have been pushed back from Paris at the Battle of the Marne. Um, they've ended up on these, they have a race to the sea, don't they, where they try to outflank each other and they end up That's with right, these yes. lines etched into the map of Europe. And is this, so they, they tell the soldiers to dig and they dig the trenches. Now, is this something that people, um, there was a revelation to them? I mean, so Dave Walters, who's a regular listener to The Rest is History, has said, you know, did each side expect the war to be so static? So they they have the technology. I mean, they know that both sides have got machine guns. They know they've all got barbed wire and all these things. But is this a great shock to them, um, the generals and the and the soldiers yeah, of this? It's it's putting it too strongly to say it's a shock, but it certainly comes an unpleasant surprise because they are well aware that conflicts of this sort can be stalemated. Only 10 years before, the Russo-Japanese War had seen a sort of Western Front-style conflict in Manchuria. And so you had trenches, you had stalemate, all the rest of it. The thing is, this was broken after about nine months, a, a, a year, uh, for a whole host of reasons that was not possible on the Western Front. So nobody really thought it would happen in the West, but they weren't entirely surprised when it did. Right. Um, I should actually say that the, the lessons of recent wars are always ambiguous. And you had the, the British, actually, the most recent example of, of modern warfare was the Second Boer War in South Africa, 1899-1902. And the lessons from that war were rather different from those of Manchuria. And so people came into wars not necessarily having drawn the wrong lessons from history, but have not necessarily got all the lessons in the right, in the right balance. So right at the beginning of, of the First World War, people still have a lot of faith in cavalry, don't they? So the French go famously riding yeah. in with coloured uniforms and nice helmets and swords and all that sort of stuff. And Douglas Haig, of course, is a great cavalry man, isn't he? Uh, he is and he, and he isn't. Now, why I say that is if you if, if by, by a traditional cavalryman, you know, with lots of waving swords and what have you, no, he isn't. Because cavalry, as far as the likes of Haig and the reformer school, are concerned by this stage has reinvented itself as effectively a new form of uh, as a new arm of warfare, because cavalry in 1914, British cavalry anyway, uh, they they walk as much as as they ride, they are very well trained in firearms, they have machine guns, they have light artillery with them, and the idea is that they will form effectively a sort of mobile column. Which we which we see much use in the Second World War and beyond. The difference is, of course, you're actually using horse flesh rather than vehicles. So, so yes, Haig does believe in charging forward the the arme blanche if the moment is right. And actually, these moments actually do occur do, during the war, but it's not traditional cavalry. And interestingly, in 1914, the British cavalry is much better at doing the job of recce, scouting, and covering the retreat than the French and the Germans, who are still much more wedded to traditional forms of cavalry. So I know it sort of sounds heretical to say it, but in the British Army, the cavalry is some of the most advanced uh, troops that Britain has in 1914. And so when, when, do, um, when do the generals and when do the troops in the trenches begin to realise the nature of the war that they're involved in? 
Well, in one sense, very early on, because casualties are staggeringly high from the beginning, much higher than they had experienced in the Boer War, and in fact, much higher than the planning for replacing troops and indeed for replenishing stocks of shells before the war had, 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 had taken on board. So no one's in is any, any illusion at all by about September, October, November 1914. This is a very bloody war. Had any, but, Gary, had anyone yeah. actually said it will be over by Christmas? Or is that a myth? <sighs> Various people did say that, uh, but it certainly wasn't a sort of planning right. uh, assumption of the army. After all, because when, when Kitchener becomes Secretary of State for War in August 1914, he immediately announces this war's going to last, last at least three years. Yeah, and the Germans too. I mean, the Germans, there's lots of quotes, aren't there, from Moltke and the you know, other generals who sort of say, well, we hope we're going to win it quickly, but if we don't, it's going to be an absolute nightmare and it'll all Europe will be consumed and all this. Well, in fact, it's Moltke the Elder who famously says something that I think in the 1890s at the end, end of his life. So the, the, the Germans actually come into the war really staking everything on a quick win. And when it doesn't happen, they think, well, what are we going to do now? Yeah. And they then have to improvise uh, a, 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 a prolonged form of warfare, which of course they do, you know, up to a point quite successfully. Otherwise, they keep the war going for another four years. But there's no attempt at this when when they start to realise that you know it's going to be a deadlock and a, a, a horribly bloody deadlock. That uh, w- there's no attempt to kind of arrive at a, a peace or. Well, there are sporadic attempts to come to peace terms throughout the war. In fact, I'm about to reveal my complete this by saying a book has been published very recently arguing there were some very some serious attempts to, to negotiate peace in 1915-1916. I can't remember the name of the author and I haven't read the book, so beyond that I can't comment. <laughs> uh, welcome, all, welcome to our podcast. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've listened to many of your podcasts. Um, all I would say is that um, my take on it is it's difficult to see how there could be a compromise peace in the West because it would involve the Germans compromising and they, as far as I can see, they were never prepared to abandon territory in the West, even though it clearly would have been to their advantage to do so. So, for example, at the end of 1917, when they have knocked, effectively they've knocked Russia out of the war, the, the Germans win the First World War Part One, which is against Russia. At that point, had they come, they, had they sort of moved from the battlefield to the negotiating table, I'm pretty sure they could have come up with a very favourable peace, as in give back all the stuff they conquered in the West, and you've still won. You've got all of, of the Russian Empire to exploit and, you know, and, and, and to, 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 to build upon. The, the Germans choose not to do that. They decide they're going to go for broke by attacking in the West. And of course, in the end, that actually brings them down. So I, I, I haven't read the book, so I can't comment on, 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 on the argument. But actually, from my reading of the evidence, there's very little scope for compromise because the Germans are simply not prepared to make those compromises. And it, after it's the the French have got the Germans sitting on their territory. Why should they compromise? Yeah, yeah. And also, Tom, I was thinking about this today because I knew this would come up. Um, it's a bit like the our Vietnam podcast that we did with Andrew Preston about you know why the Americans kept on with the commitment. I mean, politically, I think with wars, you know, when you go in, you go all in, and you sort of say, well, this is essential for our national honor and for our national survival, and it becomes very difficult then after a year or two years to say, you know what, actually, it's not, it's not really essential. Um, we can just do a deal. I mean, well, not least because you're betraying, you're effectively betraying everybody who's already died 
and all the bereaved, to whom you have said it was absolutely essential that they died and we are now committed to winning the war. And actually, Gary will know this much better than me. If you read what the soldiers themselves were saying, like the British soldiers, for example, they would often say, well, I'm determined to, you know, we have to finish the job. We're in this for a reason. You know, lots of them were very patriotic and they and they wanted to to win. Absolutely. If I, if I could chuck, chuck in the name of a book I can remember the title of, uh, by, by my friend uh, uh, Mike Nyberg, a very distinguished American historian of the First World War, Dance of the Furies. He argues that actually there wasn't a great deal of hatred which propelled the peoples of Europe into war in August 1914. But after war broke out, yes, that hatred did pile up, not least because of the vast losses. And it becomes, you know, are you going to, are you going to betray the people who have died already by making comp- compromised peace? And where is the hatred most visceral? In the trenches or back home? Uh, it tends to be on the home fronts, actually. Uh, we there's a sort of a bit of a sort of sentimental idea that there's all the all the men in the trenches admired each other. They're all fellow sufferers. There's certainly a bit of that. There's also a lot of I think individual hatred of shooting prisoners out of hand, of uh, of, of failing to take prisoners in the first place. So I wouldn't overstress it, but it does tend to be on the home front that you get you know the the real demagogues uh, in Britain, France, Germany, and and, and elsewhere kicking up this this fuss. But you, it does feed into a total war mentality. And once you have turned that on, it is very difficult to turn it off again. Right. So so, so on the topic of, of the experience of, of the soldiers in the trenches, I had loads of, of questions about this. Sure. Uh, and we began with Wilfred, Wilfred Owen. And, and that's the kind of conventional sense is mm. that it's all slaughter, blood, horror, rats, gangrene, whatever. Um but we've we've got a question from Mark Brooks. What what do you think of the view proposed by Neil Ferguson that many soldiers actually enjoyed their wartime experience? And from Bariga or Berija, many historians who interviewed First World War infantry veterans say the survivors never talk of the horrors of the trenches, but more of mateship and comradeship. Mm. Um, yeah, did, 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 you know what, what was it? Was war hell, or was it actually? Okay, did well, people I- enjoy it? I think a very few people actually enjoyed the war in a sense they liked the killing and the violence. Uh, Hitler, of course, famous example of that. Ernst Junger, uh, Storm of Steel and all, all the rest of it. Uh, and and, and the, 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 the British equivalents. I mean, interestingly, uh, Siegfried Sassoon was known as Mad Jack within the regiment because he was a suicidally brave officer. So you could actually have very ambiguous views about the war. You could actually enjoy it and still, you know, hate it in, in, in other ways. In a broader sense, I think many men did, again, enjoys putting it too strongly, but actually they didn't mind the war, at least at least military experience, um, and all sorts of reasons for this. Uh, if, if you are poor on the margins of society, the army will feed you three times a day and give you a stout pair of boots. It's, it comes up at that sort of simple level. If you are uh, a city clerk, an incredibly boring job in London, you suddenly are out, out, out in the fresh air, training with your mates and all the rest of it. Of course, once you get to the Western Front, it's different and all the rest of it. But people do have very mixed and ambiguous responses to the war. Um, I actually interviewed a few Great War veterans. Uh, you know, I, I was in, I was in my, 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 my 20s in the early 80s uh, doing, doing postgrad degrees. And I didn't find any of them who really said, oh, oh the war was terrible, everybody hated it. Mo- many of them had a much more nuanced view. Quite a number actually dismissed what we would now call the Black Adder view, of course, it's slightly before Black Adder, uh, as simply, well, you know, okay, it's a bit of knockabout fun. And in the same way, um, various work has been done on, on, on veterans who saw 
Oh, What a Lovely War, both the play and the film in the 1960s. And uh, some of them really enjoyed it because they're actually singing the songs of the trenches they remembered, but they rejected the overall message. Yeah, I've heard that story. Isn't there a story about a group of veterans who go on a trip in to see the play or something? And at, at the interval, they're all kind of singing the songs and they're chatting. Oh, do you remember when that bloke had his head blown off? <laughs> or oh, it's kind of these sort of anecdotes, um, which in a way is not altogether surprising, is it? Because am I not right in thinking that if you're on the Western Front, if you're certainly if you're a British soldier, you don't actually spend that much time in the trench at the front. You spend a lot of time behind the trenches, don't you? I, I, absolutely, you do. Uh, you know, the idea that soldiers sort of arrived in France in August 1914 and stood up to their waists in, in, in mud until November 1918 is, is, is simply untrue. Uh, in, in a sort of classic period of trench warfare in 1916, 1917, there was a set period of time you might spend four days in the front line, four days in the, in, in the support line, four days in reserve. In other words, behind the lines. And, and how much leave would you get? Uh, for the ordinary soldier, actually, not not very much. Uh, you might get a couple of weeks every year. For officers, it's it's, it's more than that. Um, but there was also quite a lot of leisure time built in. I mean, it sounds absolutely bizarre to us, but soldiers were sent off to the seaside to do some paddling and sandcastle building. Awful lot of football and, and cricket and other games are played behind the front. The army sees sport as being really important as, 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 as training, as building esprit de corps, and, and basically as, as, as recreation. Uh, I don't know if, if, you, if you remember, if you've, you've seen the, um, uh, the Monocle Mutineer TV series from the 1980s. Now, it's historically, it's, it's a complete travesty, uh, but some bits of it they got very right, largely because they rely on the, the uh, I think it was Jack, I can't remember, was, I can't remember who, 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 wrote, who wrote it, but uh, the, the writer actually, I think, relied very heavily on, on, on some reliable sources. And there's one great one in which they have a series of monologues given by soldiers, uh, which were typical typical things you would hear at concerts behind the lines. Now, given the sort of the the culture of Britain at the time, in which you know the music hall was really important and people made their own entertainment, they would gather around the piano and have sing songs. You get lots and lots of this sort of stuff. And all of this actually very mundane stuff was really important in keeping up keeping up morale. And um, I actually did, did my PhD work on, on this sort of stuff. And I was actually quite surprised by, you know, it's it doesn't tend to be, you know, very heroic actions that keep men going. It's, are you playing football? Are you getting a, le- a letter from the missus at home? Uh, you know, is, is there a decent ration of tobacco? Can you get hold of some, some, some decent English beer as opposed to French mark? It's that sort of sort of thing that keeps people morale up. And, and that question about the beer, that point about the beer, um, Cy James has a question about how similar or different were the experiences of the different kind of troops. Now, am I not right in thinking that when British, when people used to capture, for example, the German trenches, they would say, oh my God, the German trenches are fantastic. You know, they live in five-star luxury compared with us. <laughs> so were they sort of very different experiences of the uh, different combatants? Uh, they were, but you must always take into, uh, into consideration the rampant anti-foreigner prejudices prejudices which 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 crop up so whenever the british take over french trenches they're dirty they're, they're <laughs> unkempt because they're french i mean whether yeah. they are or not it's not you'd expect that though right, right? i mean, <laughs> I mean they are, another, another matter but you see that time after time uh, with with the german trenches it is a bit different for, for a very interesting strategic reason the germans having captured their ground in the western front uh until march 1918 certainly against the British, they're not really seeking to advance. They are there for the long haul 
They are so therefore they're happy to build uh, deeper trenches than the British to make them uh, more livable in because people could be there for a long time. With the British, they're only ever a temporary expedient, at least in theory, because you're going to be leaving those trenches and capturing the ones in front of you. And so actually, there is some truth in the idea that, that German trenches tend to be deeper, they tend to be more comparable than the British ones. But of course, there is a fair amount of, you know, scuttlebutt going about these things. There's rumours right. about, you know, the Germans, oh, Germans have women in their trenches. and all that. <laughs> right. you know, Showers. Absolutely. All, all <laughs> yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, so, Tom, there's a question here that I put in there that I got off Twitter just to appeal to you. And I'm amazed you haven't asked it. You've shown her kids. Is this, is this one from Steph Hep? It is Steph Hep. Are you not going to ask Steph Hep's question? Well, it, it's been um, it's been staring out at me, and I've been heroically resisting it. And, go on, and go there was, on. There was a yourself. pause. There, there was a pause there, and I thought, should I should I dive in? And yeah. I didn't. And then you served it up to me. Yeah. Okay, so this is from Steve Hep, who is a friend of the show, who sent in lots of fascinating questions. And Gary, I know you'll be interested in this question um, on on the topic of morale and how people people's feelings in the trench. This is on an aspect that, that that often I think gets overlooked, but obviously I also think is Of course important. you would say that. Devotion to and visions of St. Therese of Lisieux were a widespread phenomenon on the Western Front, and Wilfred Owen's war poetry is suffused with Christian imagery. Did faith, Christian faith, I guess specifically, play an important role in the psychology of frontline soldiers? Well, uh, I, I'm completely surprised, of course, you've asked me a question about Christianity, Tom. <laughs> I, I didn't see that coming at all. I know, it's actually literally a bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just briefly, before I answer, it's a really good, good question. It says something about, about Wilfred Owen. I meant to say that after you, you said his poem at the beginning. Um, that's actually not entirely typical of Owen's view of the war. After all, he is a man who was decorated for gallantry and actually killed in uh, a really excellent piece of low-level leadership in uh, November 1989. Crossing the Canal, wasn't it? it? Yes, it's Crossing the Canal. And, and, and uh, what's always forgotten, almost almost always forgotten, is that the 4th of uh, November 1918 is the last great British victory on the Western Front. And the reason it's the last great British victory on the Western Front is it played a large role in breaking the German uh, high command's will to fight on any longer. So the idea he's killed just before the end of the war, wasn't it a tragedy? Well, yes, it was a tragedy that this man was died. Was it a tragedy in the sense of completely futile and senseless? No, it wasn't. Uh, actually, Britain being Britain, we've completely forgotten the victory of the 4th of November 1918. But nonetheless, it is one of the most significant British military victories of, of, of the First World War. And so I think we need to see Owen, like so many other soldiers, actually had quite an ambiguous view about the war. To, to latch on to the pity of war and all the rest of it actually is not to see the whole picture. of right, Owen, so not, Owen, not a pointless is. death. Not a pointless death. <sighs> In military terms, in military terms. It is not in a military sense, and I would argue it is not in the broader sense, uh, because I think the First World War is a war that was forced upon Britain and Britain actually had to win. But we come okay, back we'll come, I think we should come to that after the sure. break, but if we could just look specifically on the, on the issue of faith okay, in the trenches. Uh, right. I've got a, uh, an admission to make here that when I was writing my PhD on British morale uh, in the early 90s, I almost entirely overlooked Christianity as a factor. Uh, which is daft, actually, because I was as a paid-up Christian member of the C of E and all the rest of it. But actually, it didn't simply did not feature very highly in the literature of the time. In recent years, however, it has come back with a vengeance. There's a lot of really excellent stuff about uh, faith and morale in, in the First World War. By, uh, for example, like my, my former colleague at the University of Birmingham, Michael Snape, uh, by Alex Watson at Goldsmiths, and, and, and various other people. And I think it is really important. Uh, now, I think that the number of people who were active practicing Christians and it had a really impact on their morale, 
are fairly small, but in the sense of diffusive Christianity that everybody in Britain at that time pretty well had some sort of belief, however vague, and they certainly signed up to a a Christian worldview, it is really very significant. And uh, the war was sold at some level as a crusade. I think it was understood at some level as a crusade. And even at the sort of micro level, going to going to church services. I mean, church parades are never very popular, except on the eve of battle. Well, actually, they tend to be informal um, voluntary services. And soldiers did get an awful lot out of them. And indeed, the people at home got a lot lot of solace, I think, through faith. Now, some of this went off at slightly strange angles. Of course, the First World War sees a massive revival of spiritualism, uh, because as people seek for answers outside the established bounds of Christianity and to contact the dead and all the rest of it, Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, the the, fa- the, the, uh, the author of the most famously rational detective, Sherlock Holmes, buys into this in a really big way. But what I would say in, in general terms is that historians now, myself included, would now see faith, and, and specifically Christian faith of various degrees, how orthodox or not, another matter, has a really important role in maintaining soldiers' morale. The same is also true, I think, in Germany and to some extent in France, although I'm, I don't have any expertise in those two armies. And Dominic, yes. of course, the single most influential text to come out of the First World War was written by a very committed Christian. Gerard Tolkien, of course. Yes. Yeah. yes, and I think on that note... We should go to a quick break and then we come back, Gary, perhaps we could talk about the the strategy and the generalship and uh, whether it was all a, wa- a waste of time or whether it served, um, served a purpose. Brilliant. See you after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katie Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are with Professor Gary Sheffield, um, author of Forgotten Victory, expert on the Western Front. And we're about to get into something that I know he's very enthusiastic about. Um, So we have a question from Stephen, which I'm sure you will welcome. Is the lions led by donkeys analysis unfair? So this is the idea that the generals of this kind of pack of, you know, upper class twits and competent buffoons and the soldiers are heroic lions who have been betrayed and sacrificed and slaughtered in their in their thousands. um, And it's all the general's fault. And I know you have very strong views about this. The answer is is no. Next, next question, please. <laughs> now, okay, I, I, it's to go back a bit. The whole lions led by donkeys thing is something which emerged really during the nineteen thirties uh, in a fully fledged form. You can see elements of that during the war itself, although not not very strongly, out of the nineteen twenties. But generally speaking, until Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, Earl Haig, as he becomes, dies in early uh, 1928, or was it 29? I've written a biography. I really ought to remember that. But anyway, sorry. But he, he if died. only we had a biographer of Douglas Haig. If, if, if only. I'm sorry I had one of those complete <laughs> mental blackouts, not for the first time. Haig, Haig dies at the end of the 20s. Let's just fudge it like that. <laughs> and coincidentally, it actually um, coincides with what has become known as the beginning of the Great War Books boom, this outpouring of disillusioned uh, war memoirs, uh, novels, rediscovery of poetry, people like like uh, like Owen, Owen, for example. And um, this sort of sees the floodgates open and there's a, a huge backlash against the generals, the war, and this basic idea that it was, it was a war... Um, Worth worth fighting, and is this, Gary, is this being sharpened by events in the thirties and, and, uh, and the sense that Germany, you know, there's going to be another war? It it, be, it becomes sharper, so it, of course, actually predates that. Uh, I, I think it's it, in some ways it's sort of quite a natural breaking point. We can see a similar sort of thing with with Vietnam in the late seventies and early eighties. There's, there's 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 a backlash, there's the deer hunter and all the rest of it. Um, I think that the real revulsion actually is not against the war itself uh or at least if you read many of the books it's not against the war itself it's actually against the peace that emerged from the war because if they were sold during the war with the idea that is that the war you know it's gonna be a land fit for heroes to live in the land that soldiers come ex-soldiers come back to in the 20s is actually quite hard um economically britain is going through problems the british empire is clearly you know on the skids to some extent and germany having been defeated uh then emerges in the 20s as a democratic state didn't last for for, 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 for very long and there is a sense that why did we bother to fight this conflict however if you read the actual um if, if you read much of much of the of the disillusioned um material it's really not that the war wasn't worth fighting that people are saying it's actually well what happened at the end of it was it all worth it and i should actually say that this period of of massive disillusionment which of course brings about the emergence of pacifism really is the only time in british history as as, as a serious political force actually is quite short-lived and it's quite quite shallow 
Uh, many of the people who as uh, public schoolboys in the late 20s and early 30s are, you know, joining the Peace Pledge Union and the rest of it, are there as infantry officers in the, in the army in 1939, 1940. Uh, Michael Howard, Professor Sir Michael Howard, who died only about, about two years ago, uh, became the greatest British military historian of the 20th century, wrote uh, very uh, revealingly about how he was carried away as a schoolboy at Wellington in, 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 in the 30s by these ideas. And of course, he ended, ends up as uh, an officer in the Coldstream Guards, winning the MC and becoming a great military historian or the rest of it. Um, but what this does do, I think, is actually have a major impact, which lasts long beyond the period of the 30s, about the way that the First World War is viewed. And the second major event, I think, is the Second World War, which in very crude terms, the Second World War, from the British point of view, is, is a good war. The British are obviously wearing the white hats. The Germans are obviously wearing the black hats. When the First World War, things are much more ambiguous. And seen from 1945, why, are, why is Britain fighting Germany? Was the Kaiser really that bad? Was, was the Kaiser as bad as Hitler? The answer to all this, of course, is no. Well, the Kaiser wasn't as bad wasn't as bad as Hitler, but that ignores the the really desperate threat that Imperial Germany posed to Britain to the British Empire, which of course is extremely important in people's thinking in the First World War, to the stability of Europe, and I would argue to the existence of liberal democracy of Europe in 1914. So by by being wrenched out of context, all of this suddenly the First World War no, no, no longer makes sense. And the third major thing I think is what happens in the 1960s is CND, the Cold War and nuclear weapons, uh, whereby, I mean, oh, what a lovely war, I think in many ways, is basically projecting Cold War fears of mass deaths onto the First World War and using the First World War as a sort of analogue for the, for the Cold War. All of this fuels uh, this sort of backlash against the First World War. And actually, it, it infects you know, popular television, films, all the rest of it, and loads and loads of popular books, possibly on, on a very long list of terrible books about the First World War. <laughs> Alan Clark's The Donkeys, which appears in 1961, is absolutely the worst. Uh, but, but only a year before that, uh, a book by Cyril Falls, who is a, a combat veteran of the First World War, an official historian, appears, which has a very balanced, very modern view of the First World War. John Terrain, the great, you know, the enfant terrible of British military history, he starts writing at the end of, nine, of the end of 1950s, rehabilitating Douglas Haig. So for those who want to read a bit more widely, there is a more balanced view of the First World War around. Right. But it's not really until the 1980s that it starts to get into the academic mainstream, to the extent it ever has, let alone into the public mainstream. Okay, so, so, so that sets up two brilliant questions, one of which is... Um, you know, to, what are the stakes on the Western Front for, for both sides? But let's stay focused on the British. And also, how effective are the generals on the British and the French side in prosecuting the war? Now, um, I don't know if you heard our episode on the origins of the First World War. I knew you were going to bring this up, Tom. In which uh, Dominic presented a radical thesis that we should have sided with the Germans against the French. So I'm just going to sit back 
and uh, <laughs> like Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> like the Swiss and what you yeah. do. And everybody Harry... loves the Swiss, don't they? Nobody looks at the Swiss as nobody thinks of them as smug and <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't mind being smug on an occasion like this. Well, so, so, so... Strange, strangely enough, a number of British soldiers in nineteen fourteen actually would have agreed with Dominic's view. Yeah. Of course. Because the Germans the voice... played Germans played football, drank beer and all the rest of it. Yeah, they're much more like us than the French. But Gary, uh, we have we uh, listeners have heard Dominic's ludicrous views on this. So <laughs> so, so, so 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 give give us the measured sense. Perspective okay, on, right. on what's at stake. Uh, well, it's difficult to be measured on the origins of the First World War. It's also <laughs> difficult to spend less than five weeks on it. My take on it actually is is a very simple view, perhaps a perhaps a simplistic view, is that ultimately the triggers for the First World War uh, come from from Berlin and from from, from Vienna. The Austro-Hungarians, for for from their perspective, uh, good reasons, want to go and sort out the Serbs, which they regard as being an existential threat existence of the, of, to the Habsburg Empire. Um, the trouble is the Serbs are, of course, uh, protected by Russia, which is allied to France, which is, has a, a loose allegiance to, 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 to Britain. The Germans in uh, the blank check in early July 1914 effectively say to the Austrians, we will back whatever you do, knowing full well that that is likely to unleash the dominoes which bring in Russia, which bring in France, which even even bring, bring, bring in Britain. So up to the point at which the Austrians attack Serbia on the 23rd of July 1914, the First World War is eminently avoidable, in my view. After that point, it is not, because basically this is starting to bring the, the great power uh, structures structures in, into play. And it's very diff- very deliberate decisions on the part of the German and Austrian decision-making elite. Now, no one is completely free of blame in the sense that everybody, to some extent, contributed to the um, the, the pile of tinder, to you know, a hackneyed phrase, which actually a flame is, is, is set to it and, and it blows up, blows up in the summer of 19, 1914. But it's the Germans and Austrians who actually make decisions consciously that they could have chosen not to have made and kick off the war, Gary. Could I not? Could I just jump in? Please could you do. not make the same claim, for example, about Russia? No, no, so, Dominic, for example, Dominic, Aust- Dominic, Dominic. This is about the Western Front, and you're dragging us. So I'm going to be like Melvin Bragg. That's ah, oh, this is shocking. No, this I'm is really about that. shocking because, because 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 this is about the Western Front. So what I really want to know is, is Gary, yeah, your position as someone who really knows about this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should no, end the podcast. No offence, no offence. <laughs> what is at stake okay. for the British and the French in the Western Front? So, if they, if if the Germans break through and they capture Paris or whatever, what what follows? What what is okay. at stake? Right. What what is that? First of all, for the French. Now, actually, we we know what the Germans are intending to do because actually they wrote uh, a memorandum in September, so after the war had broken out, about what they will do in the event of the victory. They think it's going to happen very shortly. Basically, it's to reduce France to a second-class power, to take uh, big chunks of key French industrial land uh, in the north of France. Belgium becomes a German protectorate. Belgium actually is one of the most highly advanced and industrialised states in Europe, of course. And in the east, effectively, they create well, basically what, what, what Hitler set out to do in the East 25 years later, minus the conscious genocide, which, of course, is a very big thing. But nonetheless, it's effectively re- reduced the uh, the Roman Empire to uh, 
to a series of uh, of, of German German client states. So that completely tips the balance of power in Europe, uh, and, and, and the French would have been reduced to the situation. You know, pre eighteen seventy, pre eighteen fifteen. From so the that br- stuff with the French sounds great to me, Gary. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm staying out of this one. Uh, for, 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 for the British, obviously, that has an enormous impact on stability. One of the, the, the great tenets of British foreign policy, stroke English foreign policy, going back centuries, of course, is to maintain a balance of power in in, in Europe and also to keep the Low Countries. Uh, specifically in this case, Belgium, free of uh, an aggressor, particularly an aggressor with a powerful navy, which, of course, Germany is. And also, of course, very unfashionable today, but the British Empire is critically important to British thinking, not merely of the British government, but actually to the British people, and not so much Canada, because they've got the United States on on, on its doorstep, but Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, lots of these places are actually really scared by the threat. Not so much what will happen uh, if if uh, the Germans turn up, because you know the Germans aren't there in any great strength. But actually, if the shield of the Royal Navy is removed, so for example, Australia and New Zealand really worried about Japan, a British ally at this stage. But the Aussies and the Kiwis are not very keen on this, and and really their defence rests upon the Royal Navy. Remove Britain, remove the Royal, Royal Navy from the. Uh, from, from the board, suddenly everything's up in the air. So for the British, as they see it, it is an absolutely existential threat that everything is going to 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 um, to, okay. to, to, to be up up up, up in okay. the air. So the stakes are very high. Um, absolutely. So seen in that light, what case would you make for the performance of the British military and particularly the high command? Um, I actually don't think you could link the two things. Because the ability to end the war by a compromise peace and negotiation, that's actually up, up at a higher level that the, at least the British military actually don't have very much say in that at, at, at all. The performance of the British military is patchy, to put it mildly. I think it's related to having to learn to fight a new style of warfare for the reasons I gave at the very beginning of the programme. Basically, they haven't done this sort of stuff before. British army before the war is very small. It's very experienced, but in colonial warfare, which only has limited crossover to what they are doing on, on, on the Western Front. And the if you, th- if you think that the British army sees major combat really for the first time on the Somme in July 1916... Um, Yes, large battles before, but this is really on, on, on a major scale. It's an army which is largely composed of men who had been civilians 18 months before, not terribly well trained. And their officers, although they don't have quite a lot of experience, not at the level at which they are commanding and not of the sort of experience that that, 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 that is relevant. And I'm not for one moment going to try and whitewash the mistakes that were made, the lives that were cost and all the rest of it. All I would say is that by the end of the war, the learning process has been pretty impressive and the British Army is by no means flawless, but actually it is highly effective. It is better, I would argue, than the German army. It is better armed, it's better trained, it's better commanded, it's got higher morale. And all of this means that well, the, the victories in 1918, in my view, are the, are, are the greatest in, in British military history. Certainly in terms of scale, they're bigger than Wellington's victories, they're bigger than Montgomery's victories. And also I would argue in terms of what is at stake. And one of the problems we have of the, the Black Adder view 
or indeed the uh, the photo that you put on Twitter to advertise this I podcast. I know that was. was yes. I agree with you, Gary. That was shocking. Uh, uh, well, it actually, it actually. I wasn't surprised you did it, but it sets up a particular set of assumptions. Now, of course, if the First World War, in fact, going back to the 1920s, had been seen largely through the prism of 1918 and the victories, rather than 1916 and the and the disasters we would have a very different view of the First World War. And uh, something I and a number of other historians have tried to do over the last few years is simply say, there's more to it than the Somme. Yeah. It's a lot more complicated than all it's that. It's very sad, Gary, that people like Tom are trying to undo all the work that you've done. Uh, well, we should, just, we should just however, explain. However, let we, me just... We, we just say that the photo was a picture <laughs> of people uh, carrying stretchers through the mud of Passchendaele. Well, so, this is what uh, I want to ask about. So yeah. let me let me before we get on to 1918, <laughs> and I know you're brilliant on 1918, and I really want to do that the German offensive and then the Allied counterattack and so on. But if I was, you know, some people who disagree with you would say, and if I'm sort of going to ventriloquise them, they would say you've leaped pretty quickly from the Somme to 1918, and there's a long period in between where they're making the same mistakes again and again, and they're mm. not learning from their mistakes mm. at Passchendaele, for example. Mm. Um, is that fair? Or do you think that criticism... So in other words, you know, they they keep sort of trudging through the mud and being shot down and yeah. not using enough artillery and stuff. Uh, is that fair, do you think? No, no, it, it, it isn't fair, although it has an element of truth in it. Now, we used to talk about the learning curve that the British Army had, which would be largely moved away from that because it, it implies a smooth upward transition. Actually, it isn't. I, I, I've baffled some of my students over the years by saying it's more like the learning Loch Ness monster that goes up and down and up again. There is not consistent learning of lessons. You do see mistakes made, same mistakes made over different periods. Um, but it's more like a stepped progression. It's gradually going upwards. And um, during the Somme itself, I mean, the Somme is a battle which lasts from July to November 1916. And you do see some really significant advances um, both on the ground and actually in terms of technique. You also see them saying, play, make the same mistake over, over and over again. In 1917, you see a major, a major advance in both sense of the Battle of Arras in April and Passchendaele, which is a really interesting example because, yes, you do see some failures at the very beginning of the campaign. And, and that photo, Tom, is from, I think, uh, early August 1917, where there's unseasonably heavy rain. Actually, having looked out the window here, it's pouring. Um, but only a month or so later, you have three dramatic victories uh, as part of the Third Battle of Eat, which is the correct term for for Passchendaele, which brings the Germans very, very close to, to, to defeat. In fact, in the end, I think it's only the breaking of the weather on the 4th of October 1917, which makes it very difficult for the British to continue their advances. Other factors as well, which which would say save, saves the Germans. Uh, Nick Lloyd's book on Passchendaele, published three or four years ago, is actually very, very, very good on this. And the one of the questions which actually was posed on Twitter why was it that the uh, the Germans broke through in March 1918 and, and, and the British and the French had spent three years trying to do it without failing? Well, um, that the British had broken through on the 20th of November 1917, the first day of Combray, and it had much the same uh, impact as the German breakthrough uh, in 1918. They broke through the enemy trenches through the use of innovative tactics, in the British case, technology as well, use of tanks, but they could not sustain the advance. So both sides were learning from their own mistakes, from the uh, from their from their, their allies along the trenches, and indeed from from each other's advances and mistakes. So actually, it is a continuous progress. It's not a perfect one, and at the end of the war, you still find some units are rather better than others for all sorts of reasons. But 
there is a steady uh, imp- imp- improvement. Certainly, the British Army of November 1918 is light years away from that of the 1st of July 1916, which I think is a, a fair point of comparison. Okay. Why do the Germans... The Germans must are conscious, aren't they, there? In a sense, the Germans are always going to lose from 19, the end of 1914 onwards, and they're finally rolling the dice at the beginning of 1918 yeah. because that moment is looming and it's, you know, go for broken gamble or inevitable defeat will, will follow. Well, as, as I think I've already mentioned, I actually think the Germans should have gone for a diplomatic settlement, which they would have come out of, you know, with a compromise, i.e. they give back the stuff in the West. They would have emerged much, much stronger. And in fact, it's a real fear with the British in British Foreign Office that that's what they're going to do, that the Germans will, you know, come out of this stage of the war with a compromise peace which leaves them stronger, and there'll be a renewal of war five, 10, 15 years down the line with the Germans in a, in a much stronger advantage. Um, they're actually looking back to what, until 1914, was called the Great War in Britain, that is Napoleonic Wars, where you had a series of campaigns and then pieces, or at least, you know, there's not much going on. And then and then there's another battle fight. They think it's going to, be, going to be like that. The Germans basically make the wrong decisions, largely because I think that the people, the, the two key players who are running, effectively running the German government at this time are... Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the senior commanders, who have largely pushed the civilian government to one side. And certainly the, the Kaiser is not much more than a cipher at this stage. And they have very, very limited strategic vision. And they can only see the way to win is on the battlefield rather than by negotiating. And so they go into uh, win everything. Uh, I should actually mention the Americans at this point, because someone's bound to go to ask a question, you know, did the Americans win the war? No, they didn't. Notice they are really important because they are arriving in very large numbers by the spring of 1918. And the Germans realise if they're going to win a, a military victory, it has to be soon before the Americans arrive in so large numbers, they cannot possibly win. So the Gary, Germans, could, you, could, you, yeah. could, you, could you just give, for, for people who don't know the details of what happens in 1918, just give a, a, a brief account of, of the, the the swings and to and sure. Well, the, 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 the Germans launched their major, the Kaiserschlag, the, the, the Kaiser's Battle, on the 21st of March 1918. They attacked British Fifth Army, which is the weakest British army, kept deliberately weak by Hague because there's only a limited number of troops. And actually, that's the, the one furthest to the south. It's the one in which he can most afford to give ground because it's quite a distance to, to, to the coast. The Germans break through, but... All they succeed in doing is pushing the British and the French back without actually significantly breaking through their lines. And the the reason for this is that something which handicaps all troops on the Western Front is the lack of a a usable instrument of exploitation. Uh, In Napoleon's day, he had horse cavalry. You know, you bang a hole in the enemy enemy lines, send the cavalry through. They can move faster than infantry, they can get among them, they can chop them down. 25 years later, you have tanks which can move faster and do the same thing. In the First World War, cavalry, well, it's there and is useful up to a point, but really you cannot use it in the same way as in the Napoleonic period or tanks in the Second World War. Therefore, it, as infantry is advancing, uh, the enemy infantry is falling back at roughly the same rate. And the Germans simply are unable to get among the retreating British, Canadians, Australian, French, and all the rest of them, and disperse them. So therefore, the Germans wear themselves out by launching fruitless attacks, having left their artillery behind because they've outrun their artillery, and they just waste their, their 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 forces in attack after attack after attack. They become exhausted. The um, the really the the, the 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 boot is on the other foot 
from uh, late July, early August onwards, when the Allies go on to the offensive, first of all, at the Second Battle of the Marne, and then at the Battle of Amiens, the, the 8th of August, 1918, the Black Day of the German Army, as it's described by senior Germans, uh, when the British actually advance for eight miles in a single day. I should say British, it's the British, Australians, Canadians and French. And whereas the Germans in the spring have bashed a hole in the enemy positions and just gone hell for leather until they run out of steam, the Allies advance for about eight or ten miles, stop, move the point of attack to somewhere else, advance, stop, do the same again, pushing quite shallowly all along the Western Front until the Germans simply cannot sustain the front any longer and it collapses. And one of the ways they're able to do this it's because the British logistics has improved dramatically, even since Passchendaele. You now actually have light railways and enough motor transport to move men and supplies and critically artillery from place to place and smash a hole in the enemy lines. And that's how the Allies win. Actually, they, they, they advance a series of quite shallow advances. They advance, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles in the end. It's not a dramatic advance. It's not the advance that Hague wants. But nonetheless, it's highly effective. And in the end, the Germans throw in the towel on the 11th of November 1918 because they cannot stand any longer. They know if they go on any longer, the German army will collapse. So just to quickly jump in. Um, so the question that a couple of our listeners, Andrew Kelman and Stephen Clark, both friends of the show, um, have asked, which is how close the Germans come to winning in the spring offensive of 1918. Your answer would be they don't really come close at all because they're never breaking through. They're just pushing back. In, in purely military terms, no, they don't. But the real question is, what do the what, what does the Allied High Command think is going on? Because, of course, it's entirely possible you don't achieve much success on the battlefield, but you persuade the enemy that they're beaten and, and, and they give in. And there's a brief period in late March, say around 24th, 25th, 26th, when it does seem a bit wobbly. Haig, really, for the only time, well, the only time after, uh, after trench warfare begins gets an attack of the collie wobbles. Actually, he rapidly regains his nerve, but he really fears that the French army is going to go one way, the British army is going the other, and the Germans will go through the centre. What happens here is that a French general, uh, Ferdinand Foch, is put in, not as commander of the French army, that remains with Pétain, but Foch is put in as supreme allied commander to coordinate the operations of all the armies. And Haig says it to the fact that I, 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 you know, I, I slept well for the first night after Foch was was appointed because he now because he knew and trusted Foch and knew he was capable of actually taking decisions in the interest of the coalition, not just not just of 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 the French army. And so Foch basically was there, sort of dolling out forces, you know, saying to you know, we'll send a few French divisions here to relieve the Brits and Brits here and so on and so forth. What's ironic actually is that Haig himself was one of the principal reasons that someone like that hadn't been appointed before March 1918, because Haig was keen to hang on to, to his autonomy. But when push came to shove, he realised you needed someone like that in place. And it, of course, it had to be a Frenchman, because the French army was the last was, was the largest, and the French were the senior partners in the war. So no, the Germans did not come close to winning on the battlefield. They came perhaps closer than one might think to persuading the Allied commanders that actually they, they were beaten. But actually, it was only a brief window of opportunity, and in the end, nothing came of it. Okay, so Gary, we, we, we're drawing to a close. Um, but one last question, which I think is a really interesting one from David Paxton, again, great friend of the show. Um, and he asks, I, I guess, looking ahead to, to the sequel, World War II, <laughs> how many more weeks would the war uh, have to have lasted for the Germans to have experienced undeniable, unspinnable collapse and defeat and kill off all risk of the, the, 
the stab in the back um, as a, a credible and useful um, well, that, tool of propaganda? That, that's a really great question. I suspect not many, actually, two or three. Interestingly, Haig came quite defensive about this after the war. And I think the only time I ever saw him comment on this, he, he argues basically that, well, you know, the Germans are obviously beaten, so why carry on and, and cause more casualties? Also, pertinently, the Allies are actually are outrunning their supply lines. So they would have found it very difficult to sustain a major advance for, 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 for very much further. But there's another way around this problem, because actually the Germans are, are, are at such a state on the 11th of November, that actually the Allies could have asked for much harsher armistice terms than they give. So basically, had all the German armies had to pass into prisoner of war camps and you had you know, Allied victory parades in Berlin and Munich, I think that would have rubbed it home. As it was, I think, a combination of Allied war weariness and actually very good logistic reasons for not wanting to push on. And the fact the German army may have lost the war, but they're extremely good at winning the narrative about how it wasn't really them that, 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 that lost the war. Uh, it was actually the, the, uh, the, the, the politicians, and the Jews and the Bolsheviks at home. Of course, it's complete nonsense. Uh, the German army did really well at shaping the narrative, even though they were hopeless at fighting the war. Um, all I'd say as, as a concluding point about this Come, uh, come the sequel, as you call it, the Second World War, the Allies make really, really sure they're yeah. not allowed to do that again. There's a very, very different, much harsher uh, peace in, uh, imposed on Germany in 1945, of course. Okay, well, that's brilliant, Gary. Thanks so much. I mean, thank you. So much yeah, to talk about. And I, you know, a lifetime of scholarship compressed into an hour. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope that uh, all you listeners have enjoyed it. Um, it's it's you know i mean it's a, a tough subject but such a fascinating one uh, and we will be back soon with more historically themed podcastery we will indeed thank you gary goodbye thank everybody you. see bye you bye. next time bye bye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.